When I was a young trainer, one of my first clients in Manhattan was a couple that had a bulldog that was biting the husband. And I had dealt with what I thought were quite a few aggression cases because that's pretty much all I dealt with when I was working in rescue in the UK. But I had no idea really of what I was doing when faced with this particular case, which was quite an extraordinary case and something that I had never come across before. I'm not going to go into the particulars of the case, but what I will tell you is that I learned very quickly. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we are going to be talking about aggression in dogs, the neurobiology of aggression, with probably one of the most fascinating speakers that I've ever heard speak about the subject. Her name is Dr. Christina Spaulding. She owns Science Matters Academy of Animal Behavior, LLC. She is a certified applied animal behaviorist. She has a PhD in biopsychology, and she is a co-instructor for the graduate level course in animal behavior consulting at Virginia Tech. Christina, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited you're here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to it. And you, of course, are going to be talking at the conference about the neurobiology of aggression. So I encourage everybody to get yourself a ticket and come and listen to three days of amazing presentations, including Christina's. But you are going to be talking about the neurobiology of aggression. And and I also, I'm going to ask you loads of things. I've got so many questions to ask you. We're going to be here forever. But this is also really important, even if you are not interested in specializing in aggressive behavior, you have to know what it's all about. But I also do want to talk to you, Christina, about stress and about mm -hmm. resilience, because you've done a lot of um, a lot of research into this and you know a lot about it. So I do want to, even if people don't aren't focused on aggression and don't want to deal with that, because it does take it does it takes it, it takes a certain um, I don't know not type of person, but a certain confidence, mm -hmm. I think, and um, courage to deal yeah. with aggressive behavior in dogs. But we we do have to have a better understanding of resilience and stress as well. So, so there's lots to talk about. But at the conference, you are going to be talking about the differences in neurobiology suggests two primary categories of aggression. And those primary ca uh, categories are, if you can <laughs> take off and just tell us sure. um, what those primary categories are. Yeah. So we have reactive aggression and we have proactive aggression. And I should preface this by saying that there is not one single universally accepted way of categorizing types of aggression, but this is the most common one that I have seen in the behavior literature. And there is not a ton of research on dogs, unfortunately. Most of the dog research on aggression is looking at the effectiveness of specific medications. And then we tend, we have some survey data on different factors leading to aggression. So a lot of the data that I'm pulling from is coming from uh, rodent 
research and human research. And of course, I'm sure the first tendency is to think, well, why are we talking about that? Because we're interested in dogs. But in the absence of data on dogs, we know many, many, many aspects of behavior are very similar, at least among mammals. And so looking at rodents and looking at humans is very likely to be applicable to dogs. So coming back to reactive and proactive aggression, this is one way of categorizing aggression. And as I said, this seems to be the one that is sort of most well accepted in the literature. And basically, there's there's different ways of defining it. But typically, what you see is that reactive aggression is associated with high levels of emotional and physiological arousal. And it tends to be uh, in response to some kind of immediate perceived threat or provocation. Proactive aggression is very different in that it tends to be characterized by low levels of physiological and emotional arousal and is more, and this is where we get kind of tricky because we have to make assumptions about what the animal's intentions are, but it seems to be a more goal-directed behavior where they are engaging in aggression to achieve a specific goal. But I think the most important distinction is this concept of low arousal versus high arousal. So in one case, the individual is in a state of feeling very strong emotions. And in the other case, the arousal levels are actually relatively low. Now, the, well, people are most likely, would you say, I mean, this, would you say that this is true? People are that that are working with dogs are most likely going to see reactive aggression. The fact of of proactive aggression, there there aren't a lot of cases that I can think of in my twenty years that I could say that um, I have seen proactive aggression. But when I have seen it, to me, it's very clear. But we mostly see that more emotionally laden reactive aggression. Yes. And I wish I had statistics, but we don't. One of the themes probably of this interview will be how much we don't know about behavior. But just, you know, anecdotally from my own experience and also talking to many other people who have worked with aggression, reactive aggression seems far more common. And when I say far more common, I mean, I'm probably talking about upwards of 95% of the cases that I have seen in private practice. I think if you're working in a shelter environment, it's likely you're going to see a somewhat higher percentage of proactive aggression cases. But it's still, in, again, in my experience, it's still far more common to see reactive aggression. And you're right, It when you encounter these dogs that are displaying proactive aggression, it feels very different than dealing with reactive aggression. And one of you know the, the consistent sense that I get and that other people who've talked about similar types of cases have shared with me is that you just don't get any sense that there's any fear involved there and that the dogs seem calm 
and confident and in control. And there also seems to be an absence of any warning signals. It seems to come when people say, oh, this dog bit out of the blue. Well, mostly I can say, well, it's sometimes really difficult to see signals, but there are signals there. And it's a a bite always seems to be a it's a sort of result of a perfect storm of situation and circumstance. But that's not always the case with these with these dogs that are exhibiting proactive aggression. Yeah, and, and that is something that is, well, it, it is discussed a little bit in the literature. Um, I don't think there's been as much work done on that. And I, I don't know if it's as consistent, but it's really, it's just a hole in our knowledge, especially with dogs. Certainly though, I'm thinking of a couple dogs in particular that I have worked with where one of them, I mean, I, they were very subtle signs that progressed incredibly rapidly. And if we hadn't have had the dog muzzled, there probably would have been very serious injury. Um, and I can think of another case where there was enough of a sign for me to move <laughs> before the dog attacked another dog in the household, but there, but it was very fast. And, and I think that I, it's worth mentioning, we're talking about reactive aggression. We're talking about proactive aggression. There's also normal aggression. So typically when we're talking about reactive and proactive aggression, you're really talking about aggression that is, I mean, I, I kind of hate the word normal, even though I use it, but it, you know, it's, it's maladaptive in some way. It's either causing harm to the animal themselves uh, and, or it's impacting their ability to kind of live harmoniously with people or other animals. But there's also normal aggression, which is aggression that is related to, you know, protecting oneself when you're actually under threat or potentially protecting resources or communication. You know, I mean, things like growling and snapping are also communication behaviors. And so it, it's very complex. And I think, as you said, when you're working with aggression, we have to be really careful about how we approach these things and make sure that we're thinking it through because it's not, it's not as simple as all aggressive dogs are fearful. There's a lot more to it than that. So all of these young trainers that are going out into the world and they are now working with dogs, for example, that are exhibiting aggressive behavior on the leash, for example, this this is a really, really common problem. I mean, leash reactivity can be through a lot of frustration or great excitement. Mm -hmm. The dog is confined in a way, so it can't express itself naturally, can't get to where it wants to go to. And there's right. that real frustration for that. And we know that. But um, I I mean, I have to say that as a as a now an older trainer myself, that I do feel for, for younger people because I feel like they see, see more and more of this. Um, and it, it's really difficult to know for these people to know how to handle it. Like, how do you handle it? Because we don't have a lot of evidence. There yeah. isn't a lot of science. And so looking at science itself, 
Uh, what I like about your talk as well is that you start by saying, and, and, and guys, you, you have to listen to her because it makes so much sense, but um, that you start by saying that this, we can't just take a look at one study and go, yes, that mm -hmm. proves this. Right. Because really uh, research, well, hey, there's not a lot of research done on dogs, it's more on rats, but um, that can be applied. But we can't just say, oh, because there's a study that's been done by X, Y, and Z person. And that means that this is, aggression is this. And this, it, there, there isn't. It really is a lot of different mm -hmm. bits of data that we can put together. Yeah. So that we have a better idea of why. Yes. So as these young trainers are coming up and working, that you have to be really careful on saying definitively, yes, this is the reason why, because it's backed up by this particular study. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's a problem because we don't have a lot of data and it's changing. I mean, we're really, really lucky. I guess the flip side of that is that those young trainers that are coming up, there's a lot of research being published now. And so now, it's yes. going to take us a long time to catch up. But compared to where we are, where we were 20 years ago, it's night and day. I mean, it's totally different. But you're right. You can't, there, there's a joke um, that in academic writing, you know, you have to read 10 research papers to write one sentence. And of course, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but I mean, not that much of one. So when I put talks together, it takes me, if it's a new topic that I haven't talked a lot about, it takes me hours and hours and hours to put that lecture together because I can't just read one paper. I mean, unless it's just about that paper, right? So if I'm talking about a specific research study, fine. But if I'm talking about a topic like aggression, I cannot go read one paper and then summarize that paper because that's just one paper. It's not the whole story. If I'm not familiar with that topic of research and the people who are, you know, the big players, I have no idea if the person that wrote that paper is like sort of on the fringe or if they're consistent with what most of the other researchers think. So it is really a, you have to spend a huge amount of time if you're, if you're going into a new topic, figuring out what the body of research says on a particular topic. And that is hard if you're a new trainer. And if you're not, and to, you know, sort of add on to that challenge, if you're not actually trained and how to interpret and read scientific papers, that's a pretty big hurdle to get over. They're not. Yeah. It, that's why we rely on uh, trainers uh, and behaviorists like Michael Shikashio, like you, like me, like other people to kind of look at those research papers and filter it down so that mm -hmm. we're able to give, uh, the right kind of information to people. But in the telling of that, 
There's a whole host of definitions of what aggressive behavior is and what Mm -hmm. it isn't. I mean, you know, uh, there's, you could look at like 10 definitions of what aggressive behavior is. I, I seem to kind of gravitate to the one where, which I mostly see, which is uh, an animal behaving in a way that affects the behavior of something else to change that other, the perceived threats behavior in the fact of like making aggression to increase distance, right? So predatory behavior, for example, would not be labeled as aggressive behavior because it's decreasing distance. So, but that's not, that's just one definition. Right. It doesn't cover the whole thing. So, so how do you, how do you pick the right definition? Well, um, it's not easy. And I think the answer depends a little bit on who the person doing the defining is. So someone who is doing applied work and working directly with aggressive dogs may define aggression differently than someone who's doing research on aggression because you're you're kind of working with different aspects of it. And sometimes the way that it's defined in research is not necessarily, I wouldn't say it's not applicable to what we're doing with dogs, but it just may be a little bit removed. And so we may have to tweak it to make it, you know, make more sense to us Um, and make more sense to us, just make it more relevant to what we're doing, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, And from a research point of view, The way that this happens is that a definition is put forth and we have to, so obviously aggression is a label, right? And there's all kinds of problems with labels, which we can get into if you want, but we don't have to, uh, because that's a whole, you know, that would take a whole hour all on its own. Um, But in order to research something, you have to be able to define it so that other people know what you're researching. And so what tends to happen in the research world is that a definition is put forth and research is done based on that definition. And then as we get more data in, we realize, oh, well, there's problems with this definition. And so it's refined and then more research is done and then it's refined again. And so stress, for example, stress has a very, at least in the academic world, that definition is pretty consistent and well-defined. There's been way more research on stress than there has on aggression. So, and intelligence is another one, which again, that's a huge (laughs) rabbit hole that we could go down. But as we learn more, our definitions change. And so it's this ever evolving thing. And, um, And some people find that very frustrating, which I totally understand. But on the other hand, if we're not evolving it with increasing knowledge, then we're not able to move forward. I know you said that, you know, we'd go down a massive rabbit hole when we're talking about labels, but we do label behavior. So what do you think about there's territorial aggression, Christina. There's oh. territorial aggression. There's protective aggression. There's resource guarding. There is fear aggression. There is leash aggression. Yeah. There is, oh, I don't know. I'm kind of going down the long list. 
uh, so we're labeling as behavior depending upon the context of which the behavior is happening. Can we can we talk a little bit about labels? Because yeah, th- I think that's a problem. I think it sort of puts it in a box a little bit. And and it and you're you're right. It does help people kind of understand the context of what of where the behavior is happening it makes it a bit easier but what's the mm-hmm. problem with that well the problem with it is if the well there's a couple problems so one problem is if the label is wrong then you're going off down the wrong road and you may not you be helping the animal as much as you could be so that's probably the biggest issue uh, and we can delve into that a little bit more the other issue is that there's all of these emotional attachments to the labels and different people define them differently. Different people have different emotional responses to them. And so because I say aggression, that doesn't mean that the behavior that I'm thinking about in my head is the same behavior that you're thinking about in your head, especially if you're a client, right? Like at least we're both professionals in the same field. And so we're much more likely to be on the same page. But if you talk about aggressive behavior to someone that isn't operating in the same circles as you are, or isn't even a professional, you know, they're just a dog owner or dog guardian, where their head goes may be somewhere completely different from where our head is. And this becomes more problematic with, I think, certain other behaviors. Um, So like getting into like hyperactivity and impulsivity, we're getting a lot more research on that in dogs. And if you look at the research papers, you see research being published on dog behavior that has ADHD or ADHD-like in the title. But I would never go to a client and tell them that their dog has ADHD. I mean, there's there's issues with that from a legal standpoint, first of all. But also what I'm thinking when I say that is probably not what they're thinking when they hear that. And so one of the problems with labels is that if we make assumptions when we use a label that everyone else is using the same definition we are, we can get into trouble pretty quickly. The other problem is that it's very likely that we are lumping behaviors that have different causes into the same category and then trying to address it using the same methods when maybe there's something else going on. And so the, the, a great example of this is this concept of proactive and reactive aggression. If you're treating all aggression as the same, and we know from the research that proactive and reactive aggression involve different brain areas and different motivations, then you're, you can't apply a one-size-fits-all approach if you're actually dealing with more than one for lack of a better word, disorder. Um, The other thing that I'm just going to say specifically about territorial aggression, (laughs) because this is a big pet peeve of mine, (laughs) territory 
is a human word. So if you say the dog is defining their property or defending their property, excuse me, that property is like, I own this. I have a deed to this. I have rights to this. We don't have any evidence at all that other animals have that form of thinking. And so um, I think it's very tricky. Like, we don't even know if animals have a concept of territory. So if you then say territorial aggression, I feel like this is an example of anthropomorphism where like humans are territorial. And the same thing with dominance, by the way, humans are incredibly hierarchical, right? And so, and so I think that's part of the reason humans really want dogs to have strong hierarchies. I, I shouldn't say really want, but that's why I think the dominance they do. has I been around. I think it makes sense to them. It yeah. makes better sense to them. Right. Um, and so territorial aggression makes sense to us too, because we're territorial, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that dogs are. And just because a dog happens to show aggression or snarling, you know, snapping, biting, growling, barking on their property and not in other places. There are other potential explanations for that behavior than just being territorial. And so using the label territorial aggression, I think is problematic because it's not, it's just, it may just be completely a mislabeling, at least with resource guarding. That's kind of like a, you know, like, okay, the dog is showing aggression over a resource <laughs> um, yes. that is very clear and concrete, but territorial aggression is harder or it, obviously dominance based aggression is a huge problem. Uh, well, it is a huge problem. What do you think about that when people say your dog is being dominantly aggressive? <laughs> a lot of thoughts about this too. So, so first of all, I think in the literature, particularly the veterinary behavior literature often. So there's, they've used work. They used to use work dominance based aggression. I mean, this was in the academic literature that has more or less been replaced by impulsive aggressive aggression, but it's still going to depend on who you're talking to. Um, there are certain aspects of that type of aggression that overlap with proactive aggression. So it may like, and again, it's like, we may be talking about the same types of behaviors, but we're giving them different names and it becomes very confusing very quickly. But dominance. So we know from research that there is not a correlation between being higher ranking and being aggressive. Now, there are higher ranking individuals, and I'm not talking about just dogs, I'm talking about animals in general right now, primarily mammals. Um, there are instances where higher ranking individuals are more aggressive, and that is how they achieve their high ranking position. But there are also many instances where they are not more aggressive. And you have these different structures of social hierarchy where you have some, um, I, again, I don't love this term, but I'm gonna use it for simplicity's sake. So you have some like alpha leaders that are 
very aggressive and sort of maintain their leadership through violence. But you have other alpha leaders who are basically supported in their position by lower ranking individuals because they they sort of like share resources and they're more egalitarian. So it's not, higher ranking is not specifically associated with aggression. It is one way of achieving a higher rank, but it's not the only way. And you see this in people. I mean, it's super clear in people, right? I mean, just look at different leaders. Yes. <laughs> but you, you also <laughs> see this in other mammals, at least. And so, so that's the first thing to understand is that it's not, there is just not a relationship between aggression and rank. The other thing to understand, and there is some disagreement about this, but in ethology, the sort of the study of animals in their natural environment, rank really refer, or, you know, dominance refers to an, a relationship between two individuals. So this individual is dominant over this individual. It is not a personality trait. And I think people often confuse dominant, like a higher rank for a personality trait. And it's, again, I have to be careful because it's like, I don't want to hopelessly confuse people. There is a small slice of the research world that is doing research on um, personality in dogs. And some of those researchers do talk about dominance as a personality trait a lot of people disagree with them. <laughs> so, and it's like, and it's so hard when we're talking about these things, right? Cause it's like, I don't want to be too confusing, but it just gets muddy really, really fast. And the last thing that I will say about dominance is that dominance is considered, the function of dominance and dominance hierarchies are to control access to resources while minimizing actual conflict. The reason that those things exist, so first of all, dominance is only going to apply within a social group, a current social group. So it's, it's applied to group members. So if you have an animal that's showing aggression to someone that is out, like unfamiliar to them, right off the bat, that's not dominance. Dominance is a relationship within a social group of animals that are consistently living together. Um, and the other thing is, so again, it's, it's really about access to limited resources. Many pet dogs, they don't, they have limited in the resources in the sense that maybe they can't get food like as much as they would want to, but they're not fighting over these morsels of food in order to survive. And so that likely impacts how dominance relationships might work in domestic dogs. And the vast majority of them, at least in like this country, are spayed and neutered. And that probably impacts their behavior as well. So we have a very poor understanding of how dominance relationships work in pet dogs. But what we do know is that there's not a relationship to aggression. So, and how does this get down to the general public? Because yeah. it is, uh, it, it's very complicated. Yes. And so it's easy to say and to look at 
people on TV or, you know, uh, written certain books or whatever and say, oh, yeah, this looks like the behavior that my dog must be a dominant dog. Right. My dog is doing this. And so it is dominant. Right. It is standing on the sofa and won't let me into bed and is a, is going out of the door in front of me and is pulling on the lead. So my dog must be exhibiting dominant behaviors. It is a dominant dog. And I think that's, I mean, that does such an injustice and, and it's hard to pull people back from that. Mm-hmm. But when you understand it, you kind of, there's a light bulb moment, I think, definitely guardians have a light bulb moment, I call it, when they suddenly go, oh, I get it. It's actually much more simple than that, really. We don't have to muddy the waters. We don't have to make it complicated because it is right. much more simple. And so when I get people just to sort of observe, what do you see when when something like this happens, when you're watching the behavior, what, what actually what actually happens? Let's 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 dial it back and let's go from there. And let's let's just sort of almost like an ethologist go through what is actually happening, right? Um, and then and then we might then we might sort of kind of put our own sort of perceptions on it and sort of see see what we might think is going on. Um, I think that's much much safer. But yes, this whole the the dominance debate I think is going to carry on <laughs> forever, and until we can get some really good science that sort of filters down there that kind of proves unequivocally or you know that that what dominance is or what it isn't and and who does what and um i mean resource guarding that can we could because you talk about you just talked a little bit about resource guarding Mm -hmm. that actually this is a really it's easy to observe this behavior yeah um and it's kind of easily easy to define this behavior but if you've got a multi-dog household and you've got one dog that might covet their sleeping area but don't really covet food but you have one another dog that covets the food and not the sleeping area then then that relationship works right but the problems can happen between dogs when they're when they 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 put maybe equal value on a sleeping area or on the food Right. Now, in that, you're saying in that circumstance, in that situation, that dominance, because it is a relationship between animals of the same species, that 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 we can say that there is dominant behavior going on. Well. Well, what we think is. Probably. Um, probably. I, I, guess yeah. what, I guess what I would say is that is consistent with the research on wild animals. The problem is that dogs are, and I, I know this is maybe a little bit, people don't love to hear this, but dogs are captive animals. And I mean, mo- not all of them, but the ones that we're primarily dealing with as professionals are yes, basically yes living yes. in captivity. Yes, they are. So, <laughs> um, so what we don't have a good sense of is how that captivity is impacting that behavior. We do know that captivity impacts behavior and it impacts aggression. So you, I don't know exactly if you necessarily see higher levels of aggression in captivity, but it's, well, yeah, you probably see higher levels, at least within a group 
within the same group, you see higher levels of aggression in captivity because the animals are generally living in, in smaller spaces. So looking at a dog that is growling because someone is approaching its bed or growling because someone is trying to take a bone away from it, probably that is related to social hierarchies, but I'm just hesitant to say that because we don't have data. And there are cases, like I have had resource guarding cases that I feel like don't necessarily fit that profile. So the first type is, it's not very common, but I've had a handful of research guarding cases where I really feel like the dog is using the object like almost as a, maybe pacifier isn't the great word, but like as a comfort object. And so when you try and take that item from them, you're actually getting a like a more fear-based um, anxiety response. And I, I would be hesitant to say that's the same thing as like, that's not, I would, I would consider that more fear-based than more like normal sort of proactive aggression protecting my thing. And then I've also seen aggression that I really think has been, it's just a reinforced behavior, right? Which, which I mean, technically it's always reinforced if it's continuing, but you get these dogs that are like these young dogs that are constantly stealing items and people are constantly chasing them down and physically removing the items from them. And then they just start guarding them um, because they don't want to lose that item and it works. And so the behavior continues. But in those cases, I often find that once you start teaching like object exchanges, you see very rapid behavior change. Whereas these anxiety cases are very difficult. I, for me, I have had a very hard time seeing really dramatic process, progress in those cases. And then you're sort of like, quote, unquote, normal resource guarding is kind of somewhere in between. I have definitely seen that. I had a, a recent client who whose dog had definitely, she, well, both her and her dog had been through trauma mm -hmm. with her former partner. Mm -hmm. And that behavior, the dog's behavior had definitely exacerbated by the experience. Right. And in it, it was really, really hard to... To, to, to work with this dog. Yeah. Really hard. I mean, we're making progress, but the progress is slow because this, it's almost like that this dog's, this dog went through such a traumatic time with the person's former partner that it's almost, it, it's hard for one of a better expression to turn it around. Yeah. Um, you know, and so, you know, I have a, a uh, a veterinary behaviorist on board as well um, to, to, to help with that because I always think it's very important to to kind of get the team mm -hmm. get the team helping as well um, in situations like that but I absolutely see see exactly what you're talking about um, in something you said about the sort of that behavior almost becomes reinforcing a lot of the stuff that I've heard is that aggressive behavior can be very reinforcing. Yes. 
is that true? Can it? Because, well, it works, doesn't it? So if it works and it makes you feel better because it works, well, that's positive reinforcement. Makes you feel like, I mean, it's successful for you. Right. Wouldn't you then do it again and again and again? Yeah. So, right. So if the behavior is continuing, then it's basically being reinforced. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll go with that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There's habit, which is a little bit different, but we'll just. Very. Yeah. Um, So in reactive aggression, what you tend to see is negative reinforcement. So the animal is experiencing an unpleasant emotion and by displaying barking, growling, snapping, biting, etc., that perceived threat is being removed or decreased. And so that, that negative emotion is being decreased. I mean, we don't know for sure what the emotions are, but that, that is what it appears to be happening, right? Is the animal is in a negative emotional state, which is aversive. Uh, they behave in a way that reduces the threat or eliminates the threat. And then it appears that that negative emotional state decreases. And now that behavior has been reinforced. Proactive aggression is a little bit different because it appears that that behavior is positively reinforced which again suggests that probably the ways that we need to deal with those behaviors are going to be different. And there's another aspect of reactive aggression in that, so you, when, you, when an animal is experiencing reactive aggression, that is often also associated with, I mean, you're having strong emotions, right? So poor emotional regulation, which means that that individual is having a hard time sort of bringing their emotional state back down to a more comfortable level. And it's often associated with poor impulse control. And those things, this is where we, you know, another way in which behavior is so complicated, those things are impacted by things like stress and trauma. So when you look at trauma, I hope I'm not going too far off to the side here. No, but, no, please do. Please I, carry on. You gave your so example of the, you know, yep. the dog you're working with that has a trauma history. So yep. what we know about trauma, and in this case, so in many cases, we don't know if a dog has a trauma history. In this case, with the client you were mentioning, you do know that this dog has a trauma history. The thing that's really interesting about trauma, I think when a lot of us think about trauma, we think about fear and how there's this really strong fear response. And that is absolutely a quality of post-traumatic stress, but it's not the only one. So when you look at PTSD in humans and rodents, because they, you know, they use rodents to research this in people, you see a number of different things. So first of all, you have this stronger than normal physiological response to those trauma triggers, which I think everyone's familiar with this. What you also see is that there is an impairment in the ability to reduce fear in those animals. So if we're going to get technical, that um, fear extinction is impaired. It's not working correctly. And so their fear should be going down 
if they're being exposed to the triggers without the, you know, initial trauma or the original trauma, but it's not going down. That's happening because trauma changes the brain. So basically trauma causes brain damage, just to be blunt about it. And that impacts certain areas of the brain that are involved in things like the reduction of fear. So that's one thing that happens. You're also getting damage to parts of the brain that are responsible for um, emotional regulation. So now you're having these really strong emotions that you, that, and the prefrontal cortex is supposed to come in and help to settle those emotions down, but it's damaged by the trauma. And so it's not working properly. You also have this hyperactive amygdala that's firing more easily and more strongly than it's supposed to be. And so you're getting really strong fear. And this is called the bottom up, top down theory. So the amygdala is overactive. It's so it's coming that you've got these emotions coming up from the bottom. And then the more sort of cognitive areas of the brain that are supposed to come in and settle all of that down. So that top down is not working right. And so when those two things clash, you get these incredibly strong emotions. The prefrontal cortex is also really important for behavioral inhibition and impulse control. So if you're having strong emotions that you can't control and that is causing impulsive behavior that you can't control, that's leading to problems. You also get changes in the brain that are related to increased vigilance, increased threat detection. So you get this over identification of threats where things that are not actually threatening are getting identified as threatening. That also has to do with the amygdala because in addition to fear, one of the roles that the amygdala plays is detecting threats. And so if it's overactive, it's going to be over identifying threats. And so when you have an animal that has a trauma response, there is so much going on. There's evidence that there's changes to the reinforcement networks in the brain. So there's a lot going on that makes it very, very, very difficult to change and address behavior that is related to trauma. And in people, PTSD is very difficult to treat. And it's, I do think that there are some things happening right now in the research that suggests that 10 years or so from now, we may be making some very big major breakthroughs. But as things stand right now, it's really, really hard to treat. So if you're dealing with a dog that has a trauma history, um, I think it really pays to try and address these global changes that are happening and not just going after the fear. And increased aggression is another, you know, symptom of PTSD. Not always, not every single person with PTSD or animal with P I mean, I don't want to diagnose animals with PTSD, but animals that are displaying PTSD like behavior or have a history of trauma, um, you know, there is an increased likelihood for aggression in those cases as well. So there's just a lot going on. I'm speaking with Christina Spaulding. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to be back because I'd like to talk about stress and resilience. A quick break here to get a word from this episode's sponsor, the Victoria Still Academy. 
Now, did you know that I have a school that teaches people to be dog trainers? I love It's Me or the Dog and my work as a dog trainer on television, but those of you who know me know that my true passion really lies with helping other people live their best lives with the dogs. And I love seeing that truly magical transformation when that light bulb goes off with someone I'm helping with their dog. That's what it's all about. It's the secret source that pet professionals like me, who work with these amazing animals, that's what we all share. It's what makes being a dog trainer the most rewarding, enriching job I can imagine. It's why I love what I do. And it's also why I founded the Victoria Stillwell Academy, so that I could provide a roadmap to others who want to help dogs and the people who love them learn to do what they love doing at the highest level, that is to become professional dog trainers. Earning a living working with dogs professionally has been a dream of mine for years. And that passion is what drives all of us at VSA to create courses that are specially designed to help adult human learners chase their dreams. Now, most people already know about our flagship dog trainer course, which provides both online only and in-person options. But did you know that we also offer both dog guardians and future professionals a fully refundable 10-hour online course taught by me and other awesome VSA faculty, and it's called the Fundamentals of Dog Training and Behavior course. Now, I know it's not the sexiest name, but it's one of the most dynamic learning experiences available to dog geeks, and it's a pretty awesome first step to see if learning with VSA is right for you. Now, as a Positively Podcast listener, you can use promo code PODCAST right now to get the Fundamentals course for 50% off. That is $150 value. So, take our course. Plus, we also have a couple of free starter courses. They're free, completely free, including a course called Building Your Dog's Confidence, which reveals the secret ingredient to a happy dog life. So, I encourage you to check out VSA today. As I said, we have courses for all levels of learners. So it doesn't matter whether you're a newbie with your first puppy or a, or a grizzled vet already making a living as a pet professional. Visit Positively.com VSA to learn more and enroll in a free course. That is Positively.com VSA. We all want the best for our dogs. Whether that means you taking home some key tips for your own dogs or adding the ultimate in professional dog trainer education. Visit Positively.com slash VSA today. VSA, it is the future of dog training. And now, back to the podcast. Welcome back. I'm speaking to Dr. Christina Spaulding. And oh my gosh, if you didn't think that this subject of aggressive behavior or neurobiology of aggression is not as complex and difficult and massive then you kind of have an idea now. It is fascinating, though, absolutely fascinating. And guys, you want to learn so much more by coming to the Dog Behavior Conference, April the 21st to the 23rd. Three days of fantastic information, but you don't have to sit there in front of your computer for three days because once you register and once all the presentations have gone out live, you have access to them for one year. So you can learn at your leisure. But 
we love it when people attend live as well because it's such a it's a great event and uh, dr spaulding is going to be speaking about the neurobiology of aggression but we're going to pivot a little bit i'd like to talk about stress and resilience the importance first of all of and how do we build resilience in our puppies mm-hmm. and is there such a thing Yes. <laughs> and then how we can help a dog deal with stress. Yeah. Let's talk about resilience in puppies. Can you build resilience in a puppy? So we think so. Uh, there, we know that there are things that can be done to improve resilience. And as with everything else, if the younger we start, the better, right? So if we can get to those puppies and start working with them before they're having a hard time coping with the world around them, then that is always going to be better than if we're doing this after they have developed some kind of fear or behavior issue. Not that we can't also help them then, but I'm a big proponent of prevention and early intervention. So one of the things there's kind of, there's five big things that are related to stress resilience, exercise, enrichment, social support, control, and predictability. And we could spend tons of time talking about any one of those things, but I'm going to focus a little bit on control and having a sense of control. When animals have control over their environments, they are learning that when bad things happen, they, there are things that they can do to help them cope with those bad things. And incidentally, they're also learning that they have the ability to, to cause good things to happen in their lives. And that basically means they have a sense of agency, that they understand that their behavior has an impact on the environment around them. And what this does is it it leads to stress coping skills. So basically the animals, if I'm just going to use a human example because sometimes that's easier for us to understand. So if we find ourselves in a situation, so if we're dog trainers and a pandemic has hit uh, and we suddenly aren't able to work in person with people, you are losing that sense of control, right? You can't just go out and make money. You can't rely on all of the things that you have done in the past. If you have a history of believing that you have control over your environment, it's it's called self-efficacy in people, right? If we believe that we have the ability to basically do hard things and figure out solutions to problems, we're going to be able to cope with that, that situation a lot better. So if you think, okay, <laughs> I've just lost my entire business and I could hire my business coach. I could get a bunch of friends together, which is also social support and brainstorm ways that we can get through this. I could start seeing clients virtually. I could take my business in a new direction. I was talking to someone 
who had a boarding kennel and he was relatively close to a few different hospitals. And what he did is he started marketing to doctors and nurses for daycare and boarding because some of them would be at the hospitals for days. So that's really, really smart, yeah. right? And that that is bringing a sense of control back into your life. If instead you're thinking, oh no, there's nothing I can do. Everything is falling apart. Everything's going to go wrong. And I can't, I can't do anything. I'm, I'm helpless. I'm powerless. Your stress response to that is going to be much higher. So if we can help dogs learn that their behavior matters, they are going to cope better with stress. And if we're talking about puppies, so we can talk about things like, you know, let your puppy choose what direction it's going to go on the walk. Let your puppy choose its treat. Those are great. I mean, I have no problem with those. But for me, I guess the current thing that I'm really advocating for the most is that we let puppies interact with and explore their environment. Because by doing that, you know, if they see the scary thing, and they're able to approach the scary thing or just even stare at the scary thing for a long time until they decide that it's not actually that scary, they have just learned how to cope with a difficult situation. You know, I, oh, well that, you know, Christmas decoration wasn't there yesterday. You know, what is this thing? And they, they want to look at it. They want to stare at it. And what do, you know, a lot of guardians do? They're like, well, let's keep walking. We need to keep going. And so they kind of drag the dog away and now it's leaving still being kind of freaked out by that thing. Whereas if we could just let them stop and look and investigate, I suspect, and I don't have data to back this up. I wish I did, but based on what we do know, I suspect that that would improve stress resiliency and decrease the likelihood of them developing leash reactivity. I think you're right. I think you're right. Uh, it goes back to what you were talking before about confinement mm -hmm. and how as hard as it is for us to sort of realize this, that our animals are confined. Mm -hmm. They have to be for safety. Right. But that they don't have much choice yeah. over where they can go, what they can do, when they can do it, when they can eat, when they can toilet. Mm -hmm. And that can be quite disempowering. Yeah. So my question to you is, could part of building resilience, giving our dog choices of which direction to walk or which toy they want to play with or what food they, I mean, that's all good. Could part of building resilience require us to put a little bit more emphasis on teaching dogs how to cope with confinement? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, yeah, I mean, to me, I think that's making sure that they get enough enrichment and exercise, right? So, um, that's how they can cope with that confinement. And I also suspect, and again, 
because we have so little data on anything related to dog behavior. I don't have data on this, but if you look at how most dogs, particularly young dogs, respond when they see other dogs, I suspect that as close as our human dog relationship is, we are not a complete replacement for other dogs. And so another thing that I think that we could do, and I understand fully that this is not always possible, so we you know, want to recognize that too, but I think improving access to other dogs to interact with is probably a way for many, but not all dogs, because some dogs are already, you know, not comfortable. Um, but I suspect that will also improve their ability to deal with being confined. I am not, for the record, recommending that if you have a dog that is already terrified of other dogs or has a history of aggression with other dogs, that you just start taking them to the dog park. That is not what I am suggesting. But I'm talking about as professionals, if we can think about are there ways when we have clients coming in with puppies and with dogs that are maybe a little bit older, but are dog social, are there things that we can do to facilitate people having their dogs interact with other dogs in an appropriate and safe way? I don't know that there's been enough emphasis on that. And I, and, and I don't, I also want to say, I don't think this is true for all dogs. Like I think some dogs are perfectly content being the only dog and not having dog friends, but I don't know that that's the case for most dogs. Um, we also know from research in rats that rough and tumble play. So like wrestling together, um, in adolescent rats is vitally important to normal social development. So if adolescent rats don't have access to same age peers to physically play with, they grow up having uh, impaired, you know, sort of altered social behavior. And um, we all, there's also some data that that play may increase stress resilience. So all of these things go into you know, sort of combine together. And so, so that's one thing is I think if we can find a way to improve, you know, appropriate social interaction with other dogs, which is also a form of enrichment, by the way, you know, that's, that's, you know, often I think we think of enrichment as like training and food toys, but social interaction is also enrichment. So that's one thing. And then other forms of enrichment, you know, playing games, taking them for sniff walks and training. Training is also enrichment, although we have to make sure we're also including choice in the training. Um, but those are some things that I think can be done to help dogs cope with being confined. Can we look at the aspect as well of dogs having to cope with human behavior? Would you say that a very important, uh, I guess, skill would be to teach dogs how to cope with an approaching stranger? Is that part of building resilience in our dogs? Um, yes and no. So in an ideal world, I think we would teach our dogs to be comfortable with an approaching stranger. And so this is part of socialization, for example. And, 
And one of the key parts of increasing resilience is socializing dogs in a way so that we're setting, putting them in situations that they are able to cope with. So socialization by throwing them into a situation that is fear producing and overwhelming for them is more likely to do harm than good. But if we're giving them the opportunity to approach the situation based on their comfort level and also to retreat, that should increase um, their ability to cope with being approached by a stranger. At the same time, I think for some dogs, the answer to that, or at least part of the answer to that, is that we ask people not to approach them. I mean, I do not want to be approached by every stranger on the street, which is kind of an understatement for me. Like, <laughs> sometimes I don't, you know, I don't want to be approached by anyone. Um, yes, and, me too. <laughs> yeah. And if that kept happening to me, I might get a little aggressive, <laughs> you know, and, and snap at someone or tell them to get away from me. So, I think it's a mix, right? Like we want to teach our dogs to interact with the world that they are likely to encounter as best we can. And I also think that part of our job is helping to enforce their boundaries, especially with people who don't understand those boundaries. Yeah, uh, we need to be their advocates. Right. Just like with children. I mean, no one's going to let someone come up to their kid and start touching them. I mean, like... But people do. I mean, people do. When I had my daughter, or the, especially when she was a baby, everybody wanted... People were like, oh, she's so cute, reach out to touch. And I'd be like, no, no, no. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> right. And even when you were pregnant. Yes. Oh, people, oh, look, and then they want to touch your belly. It's like, no. Yeah. I don't know you. Right. Like, why? What, what, what is this? Some, I feel like dogs have this kind of magnetism where people just want to touch and interact. And... And and when I'm when I meet a new dog and people are like, why are you being so unfriendly? Why aren't you going up to it and saying hello? And right. I was like, because I don't. I wait for the dog. If the dog wants to interact with me and say hello, then fine. Right. But if it doesn't, then fine too. Right. I don't want to be just in their stuff. I just that's that's not. So uh, yeah, we have to we have to do a whole course, a whole thing on training people. Even if you're just not a dog lover, you don't have a dog, just yeah. like how etiquette, etiquette right. around, right. social etiquette. Um, can we talk a little bit about stress as well? Sure. Stress. And then I know we've got, we've talked a long time. So this <laughs> will be the last thing. And I could talk to you for hours, but stress in dogs. What yes. does it look like? What can we do about it? So. Um, I think the first thing that I want to cover, and I'll just cover this very briefly because I know that um, we have gone on for a little bit, but not all stress is equal. Stress basically means that there is a challenge that the animal is facing. So there's some kind of challenge that the animal has to adjust to. So something has changed. And some stress is good stress. So going out and going for a run assuming you enjoy running. For me, it would be biking. My That's... sister's about to run the London Marathon. Oh, so wow. she's just yes. yes, she is. So she's yes. going through some good stress right now. Right. So exercise is stressful. That doesn't mean it's bad, but it's changing the sort of current state of the body so that the body has to adjust to a new state 
And that is literally, that, uh, that's what stress is, is it's a response to change. So you can have a challenge that is reinforcing and that you can end up growing from and does not cause distress. That's good stress. Then you can have stress that does call, cause distress. So that could also be going for a run, <laughs> uh, depending on who you are. For me, that right. is for me, yes. Yes. So, um, but if you're able to cope with that distress and basically come through it either okay or maybe even better, right? So people, we all probably have stories where we've gone through something really difficult and we feel like it's made us stronger or more resilient. That's tolerable stress. And then you have what we usually think of as stress, which is toxic stress, where we aren't able to cope with what we're faced with. And that starts having incredibly negative impacts on the body. So trauma is toxic stress, but chronic stress is also toxic stress. And both of those things, as I said earlier, they change the brain. And we talked about some of the ways that that happens, like making the fear center overactive and making it harder to regulate emotions. And it, it, it makes animals more susceptible to becoming fearful. It makes it harder for them to recover from fear. And it causes all kinds of physical health changes that are very real. We're talking about in humans and heart disease, right? Diabetes, um, and in any animal, you know, GI issues, well, diabetes can happen to dogs too, but GI issues, growth issues, reproductive issues, and it's chronic stress literally shortens lives. So it's very bad. And and, I, and again, I just want to emphasize that not all stress is in that category. And we can't avoid all stress. We can't avoid all distressing things. And that's why teaching stress coping is so important. And by providing opportunities for stress coping, right? So you can do some teaching, but part of that is making sure we're creating a situation where the dog does have the control to back out of a situation or to get a break from something. And... Stress during development is particularly damaging because those toxic stress events that occur during development, which includes while mom is pregnant, by the way, and also includes adolescence, that can have lifelong impacts on behavior. Once an animal moves into adulthood, they're a little bit more protected. Although if they have a history of stress, they're certainly going to be more vulnerable because of that history. Um, but if you haven't had like a terribly stressful childhood, if something really stressful happens as an adult, tends to go better. But then seniors once again become really strongly impacted by stress. And that is something that we know is true, not just of humans, but of at least other mammals as well. I'm going to tell you my stress story. And okay. I think it highlights what you've talked about. I, and this does, this happened when I was 
just before I approached 40 and I was filming in Los Angeles the 25 episodes of It's Me or the Dog. Mm -hmm. And I had my four-year-old at the time who was living here in Atlanta with my wonderful husband who was kind of having to play both roles. Yeah. And I went backwards and forwards to and from LA over nine months, 60 times. Wow. And I was so distressed about being away from my child, even though I would see her once for one or two days, every couple of weeks, I was so, so distressed by being away from her Mm -hmm. that the very day that I finished filming, I was so excited. I was going to come back and I was going to be mom again, Mm going to be with my baby. And I couldn't get on the plane. Yeah. And the reason why I couldn't get on the plane was because I started to feel really, really unwell. Mm -hmm. I finished filming. I went back to my apartment to get my cases together, to get to the airport. And I didn't make it to the airport. And I thought, oh, God, I've caught a bug. So I feel terrible. So I checked into an airport hotel and I spent a very uncomfortable night there and the next day. But the next night I could get onto the red eye Mm -hmm. and back to Atlanta. And for the next two months, I could hardly eat or drink a thing because my stomach completely shut down. It did not work. I ended up in hospital, the whole thing. It was Very, very difficult. And then I was diagnosed with a chronic condition. Mm -hmm. That, I believe, was brought on by stress. It's certainly And that is my stress story. Yeah. Yep. That shows how dangerous it is. Because, you know, if you get to the point where you can't eat or drink anything because your stomach doesn't work, well, then... That's going to impact your very survival. Yep. Fortunately, I have great doctors, so I'm here today. But stress can be really, really impactful. Mm-hmm. And, and now I have a much more, I am much more empathetic, sympathetic towards other people that uh, have chronic stress and also to our dogs. Yeah. To our dogs that are suffering, because not only are you saying that there's that, that obviously that emotional suffering, but there's that physical suffering too of what it actually does to the body. So how can we teach our dogs to be more resilient towards stressful events, to challenges, to cope with challenges? Yeah. So, so a lot of that is some of the things we already talked about, exercise, enrichment, social support, providing more control and predictability. I mean, it is those things, right? But that's obviously like, that's a very sort of superficial answer. So it's, it's figuring out how do we do these things? So if we're talking about exercise, for example, much of the, the research on exercise and exercise, by the way, is there's pretty good data out there at this point that having a regular exercise routine in people is as effective as antidepressants course if you're depressed it's very difficult to get yourself to go exercise so i am not in any way trying to say that you know 
if you're depressed and you're not exercising that like that's your fault or so just I just that's you know it, again it's very very complicated but we know that that happens and right and a lot of dogs are happy to exercise more if given the opportunity um so that's one option I will say though I think at least in my experience I think the typical dog guardian has really gotten the message that dogs need more exercise my experience is that many dogs, not all of them by far, but more than 20 years ago, many dogs are getting enough exercise. So the answer is not always more exercise, especially if that exercise is incredibly distressing to them. So if you're taking your reactive dog for a walk and they're, you know, falling off the cliff and, and barking and lunging and completely losing their mind, multiple times every walk, you're probably not helping them be more resilient, right? So we have to find something that is actually enjoyable and stress relieving for that animal instead of just saying, well, I'm, you know, I know I'm supposed to get more exercise, so I guess I have to walk them. And you're actually making things worse. Um, the other thing is the research that's been done on rodents on the impacts of stress looks at voluntary wheel running is usually that's how they measure it. They've done some other things too, but it's not like they're being forced to do exercise. They're doing it voluntarily. And I think that's really important to remember. So again, that choice, right? That control. Um, so if dogs are either already getting a significant amount of exercise or it's creating really strong emotions, it could be fear from, you know, being walked in a city or something, then it makes more sense to turn to enrichment. And what I like to do with clients is I try to give them like a menu to choose from. Because if they don't want to do the enrichment that we assign for them, they're not going to do it. Like if that's not interesting for them, they won't do it. And there are so many different options and I don't necessarily mean like organized classes, right? Like one of the biggest things I would do for clients is just say, hide food around your house and have your dog find it or play hide and seek. Although you have to be careful because sometimes dogs get so into hide and seek that if you have a multi-dog household, they'll fight. <laughs> so be careful. Um, but they're, you know, or just letting them, you know, taking them even to a new location and letting them explore that location. I think can be huge. So there's tons of different things, you know, sense, like I, I know some shelters are now are starting to make um, like scent gardens. So they're growing different herbs and scented plants. And then they take the shelter dogs out to sniff them, which I think is awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and of course, dog sports. But I just I think people know about dog sports is an option for enrichment, but I think there's plenty of other, I mean, my dogs don't do dog sports. I wanted to, but that's not how life went. So, but you know, they have other things that they get, you know, I play with my dog every day in the house and all, you know, outside weather permitting, and then they get their walks and, um, you know, they get <laughs> my Australian Shepherd Finn, he gets to open packages that we receive, whether they're for him or not. And that's one of the highlights of his day. If, if we get a new package, he gets to open it. 
Um, so there's tons of different things you can do. It's just a matter of tailoring it to the dog and to the family because it has to be something that they enjoy. And I, I am going to also, I just want to put in, I guess, a plug for medication. So there are times when all of these environmental things that we do are just not enough, or maybe we don't have control over the environment. So if you live in a city and your dog is terrified by city noises and you can't escape that, then medication is often going to be your best option. And ideally we're getting medication from board certified veterinary behaviorists, but not everyone has that option. So, you know, you can also use the local vet, but I don't, you know, if I think a client needs medication, I just refer them to the vet um, and let the vet make that decision in terms of what one they need. But sometimes we really do need medication to supplement the other work that we're doing and sort of speed things up. Dr. Christina Spaulding, wow. This has been just an eye-opening, amazing podcast. So much great information for our listeners. And I'm very, very, I think this is a gift for them to be able to listen to your presentation at the Dog Behavior Conference. It truly is. Now, if people want to find out more, um, they are probably, if they're interested in doing any of your courses or any books you've written, where do they go to? Yeah, so my website is www.sciencemattersllc.com. Uh, and you can find, I have a class there. I have a monthly membership program uh, where we talk about research, new research on dogs every month. And then my book is also available at Dogwise. I have a book on stress and resilience called The Stress Factor in Dogs. So that's how people can reach me. And of course, at the Dog Behavior Conference. Fantastic. Thank you so much for spending the time talking with me. And um, I am very much looking forward to hearing you present. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for everything that you do, Victoria. Well, I knew this is going to blow your mind, and I think it did, because it did mine. <laughs> so anyway, guys, thanks so much for listening. I hope you really enjoyed this podcast, and uh, I look forward to seeing you again next week. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to Victoria Stillwell's Positively Podcast. For Victoria's online dog training courses, more information, and helpful dog training tips, visit her official website at Positively.com. Become a professional dog trainer with the Victoria Stillwell Academy at vsdogtrainingacademy.com. Get connected on Facebook, Instagram, and other social media as Victoria Stillwell. And follow her on Twitter at Victoria S. Be sure to tune in next time as Victoria helps you and your dog live your best life together. Positively.